You know, relationships can be uh, quite complicated. Uh, one of the most awkward and sometimes even distressing relationships that I uh, had as a teenager uh, was with my uncle's 1960s VW combi van. Uh, it was one of those kind of love-hate relationships because on the one hand, there was something very lovable about this combi van. You know, very simple layout, uh, had this little tiny chugging engine that was kept in the boot. Uh, it, its top speed was probably 80 k's an hour. And uh, it was kind of fun uh, to go for trips, you know, with the cousins, you know, down to the local fishing spot or off to the local tip where uh, probably um, should have been left. Um, but like I said, it was a love-hate relationship because under no circumstances would I ever want to be seen by my fellow students at school in that combi van. You know, to my teenage mind at the time, there was no more embarrassing form of transport than a V-dub combi van. Unfortunately for me though, uh, my uncle worked across the road from my high school. And so on quite a few occasions, he would offer to uh, drive me to high school and I remember that whenever I was informed ahead of time uh, that he would be driving me to school, I would quickly get ready at the speed of light and actually run to school. Uh, it was a 3K run, but I'd rather run 3Ks than be seen in that combi van. But see, sometimes I would find out too late to run, and so I'd have to go through with the drive, and I'd say things to my uncle on the way like, you know, no need to drive all the way. You can just drop me off at a corner. I can walk the last few hundred metres. No trouble for me. Uh, but no, no, he would insist on driving me right to the front entrance, red carpet entry, which means I would have to make that uh, walk of shame into the high school, uh, bracing myself for all of the laughter and ridicule uh, that would follow. See, to me, that combi van as lovable as it was in private, was a, a, an incredible source of shame. And you know, sometimes Christians can have that kind of relationship with the gospel, uh, the gospel, God's message about Jesus. Because in private, you know, we love the gospel. You know, among fellow Christians, you know, we talk about it, we sing about it, uh, we study it together, we love the gospel. But in, uh, but in public, uh, it can sometimes be a different story, you know, in, in your workplace or at school, uh, perhaps uh, among extended family or some friends, uh, there's a sense in which you feel like you can't talk about it. Uh, perhaps the gospel can be for us a source of shame among uh, our, our outside friends. And certainly in our society today, the gospel is considered shameful. Okay, what the gospel says about things like sin and about God's judgment on sin. Uh, the, the gospel talks about uh, how you know, God's wrath is against sin. It talks about how everyone must repent, how there's only one way to be right with God, and that's through Jesus alone. You know, these sort of things, today in our society, those things are scoffed at. Uh, those things are laughed at, even uh, ridiculed. In fact, these days some aspects of the gospel are actually considered oppressive to certain groups of people in our society. And, uh, you know, the idea that you would tell people that they must stop living however they want and submit to Jesus because he's the king, 
That's not the message that modern Australians really want to hear. And so for, you know, for us, there can be this sense of shame. We want to kind of keep silent about the gospel. We're not that excited about it when we get outside uh, these um, church walls. <clears throat> now, I start with this as, uh, because it's kind of where Paul starts in this letter to the Romans. This is a letter all about the gospel. But Paul starts by, well, he starts in the normal way you start a letter, you know, who, who it's from, who it's to, what it's about, like you write an email. Um, but intertwined into this <clears throat> um, customary greeting, Paul talks about his excitement for the gospel. He just can't wait to tell the Romans about the gospel. He's just so excited about it. And uh, he wants to talk about the gospel, not just to people at the church, but he wants to go to Rome so he can tell everyone. He's just so excited about the gospel. And he says that famous statement, I am not ashamed of the gospel. We learn that Paul is eager to preach it. And you've got to ask the question, what makes a person like that? What is it about the gospel that can make someone so excited that they don't care what people think? They're happy to share it with anyone. How can you be like that? Maybe we can be like that if we know the gospel. And uh, that's what we're going to do today. Let's find out what makes someone like this. What makes someone so excited about the gospel that you, you want to tell people? And we see there's three things in the passage that, that help us do that. Uh, three facts about the gospel. And the first one is actually, well, I'm just going to call it the fact of the gospel. You know, that the gospel's true. And you see that in verses 1 to 7. <clears throat> It uh, begins by uh, Paul saying, you know, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. There's that phrase, the gospel of God. Now, who can tell me what the word gospel means? Can anyone tell me what that means? Good news. That's right. That's all gospel means. Good news. So when you hear this phrase, the gospel of God, what is it saying? It's saying that God has some good news for the world. God has something to tell the world, something that's actually good to hear. Good news for the world. So what is God's good news about? Well, verse 3 goes on to say that it's, it's, it's concerning his son. Uh, he tells us in verse 3 that about his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so here, here we see what God's good news is all about. It's all about Jesus. Okay, this is what God wants to communicate to the world. He wants to tell the world about Jesus. This is what Christianity is all about. This is the Christian message, the gospel. It's about a person. It's about Jesus. And that's important to think through. Because I think a lot of times when people think about Christianity or when they think about the Christian message, just assume that it's just another religion, you know, kind of like Islam or Hinduism, you know, take your pick, oh, I'll go Christianity. Uh, or people think of it maybe like a philosophy, you know, a system of thought that you can, uh, you know, kind of like Marxism or something like that. Or other people assume that the Christian message is an ethical system, you know, as if the thing that God wants to communicate to the world is a list of do's and don'ts, and they're mainly don'ts. 
Uh, and then there are other people who just assume that Christianity, all that it is, is it's like a, a movement, maybe like a, an anti-science movement or maybe a political persuasion. Uh, but what we see here, what is Christianity about? What is the Christian message? It's not an, an ism, it's not uh, a philosophy or anything like that. It's a person. Okay, this is, what it, this is what Christianity is about. A man named Jesus. A person. That's what Christianity is. Jesus. And uh, if you look at verses 3 and 4, it's amazing how much Paul can pack into such a, a small space uh, to tell us about Jesus. You know, you've got... Well, he tells us two things in verse 3. Firstly, that Jesus is the Son, God's Son, uh, which means that he's existed forever. You know, he's one with the Father. He's existed for all of eternity, and yet he became a man. Okay? He came according to the flesh. That's talking about God the Son uh, entering into history as a human being. Um, but we also see that in his humanity, verse 3, he was a descendant of, descendant of David. And what's that about? Well, we read in 2 Samuel 7 that God made this special promise to David that one of David's descendants would be a king who lives forever, a king who would have a kingdom that, that, is, that is over the whole world. The whole, the whole world would be uh, his kingdom. And that, of course, is talking about uh, the Messiah. And that's who Jesus is, the universal, final, ultimate king. Now, when did it become clear to the world that Jesus is this person, this, this God-man, this Messiah? When did all of that become clear? Well, verse 4 tells us that he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Okay? What, what that's saying is that Jesus' resurrection was like a crowning moment in his earthly life where he was seen for all that he is. Okay, before Jesus' resurrection, there was a few people who could tell he was the Son of God. You know, there were even demons crying out, Aha, you are the Son of God. And um, there was that time, remember when Jesus said, Who do you think I am to the, apostles, uh, the disciples? And they said, You know, you're Christ, the Son of God. So they could see it. But by and large, what did Jesus look like? He looked pretty weak. He looked pretty helpless. You know, he was born in poverty. Uh, he was, well, he experienced uh, hatred and rejection. And then he suffered a shameful death. He was hung on a cross like a criminal, publicly executed. And so anyone, even the disciples looking on at, at Jesus, hanging dead from a cross, how pathetic that looked. There's no way anyone could believe that that's the Son of God. How could, they, how could anyone believe that? And then when he was put into a tomb and that rock put out the front, all that it said to them was, there lies a massive failure. Okay, but here's the news. He didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose again. And in his resurrection, then people started to realize who this really is. Not just some man. No, no, this is the Messiah. This is the promised one. This is God in the flesh. He's come, the Saviour, the King. 
So it's his resurrection, that's the crowning moment. That's when it becomes clear who this, this person really is. And Paul sums all of that up at the end of verse 4 by saying, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That statement right there, that's, right, that's really the gospel in a nutshell. Because Jesus means God who saves. Christ, that's the word that comes from the Greek word for Messiah, so the universal king. And Lord, Lord is actually an Old Testament way of talking about God himself. That's who Jesus is. God in the flesh, king and saviour. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And uh, I know that's a, lot of, um, that's a lot of theology to pack into, you know, it might be a little bit early for some of you to be, have all this heavy stuff, but we better get used to it because we're in Romans. Uh, but let me tell you what the implication of all of this is. This is what it means. It means that Jesus is king of everyone. Every single person. All of you here, Jesus is the king. Okay? Uh, this is, he's king not just of those who submit their lives to him. He's not just the king of believers. He's actually king of everyone, whether they realize it or not. Because he is the universal king. He's God in the flesh. And therefore, uh, he is actually the rightful ruler of your life. So you're either submitting to him, you know, you've either given your life over to him, or you're continuing to live ignoring him, which, if he's king, what, what does that mean? It mean? That means treason. That means rebellion. See, when we think about Jesus, you can't think of him just as some bloke from the past that you can just kind of ignore, you know, leave him in the history books kind of thing. Uh, you can't think of Jesus as just some great teacher that, you know, you can take or leave, maybe take this, you know, he has some nice ideas about loving people and stuff, but I'll ignore the rest. You can't do that with Jesus because he is the king. He's the king of all. He's the king of the universe, which means we all owe our allegiance to him. We all have to bow the knee to King Jesus. And Paul gets that across in the next verse. If you have a look at verse 5, uh, this is where he tells us what he was aiming for in telling the world about Jesus. And his aim was uh, that through uh, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, here it is, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. So that, that phrase, the obedience of faith, what, is, what does that mean? It means faith that actually submits to Jesus as king. Okay, this is what faith looks like. I bow the knee to King Jesus. And so that's the fact of the gospel. That's where Paul begins this letter. This is what God wants the world to know. Jesus is king. Therefore, bow the knee to him. And I wonder, have you done that? Have you actually received Jesus as your king? Okay, has he become your Lord? That's the first thing. Now, the second thing, um, Paul, it's like he, he keeps building on this. Because if Jesus is the universal king then everyone who bows the knee to him all of a sudden has an obligation. Uh, so let's consider that, the obligation of the gospel. That's in verses 8 to 15. And uh, this is the part of the letter where Paul... Um, actually, I need to back up a bit. You know when you write a letter, 
to someone and you always want to say something nice about them in the first little bit. You know, I remember that time we had dinner together. Wasn't that wonderful? You know, you always say something nice about those you're writing to and Paul does that here. Uh, he he um, talks about his affection for them in verse 8. Uh, he talks about his, uh, his prayers for them in verses 9 to 10. And he um, talks about his plans to visit them in verses uh, 11 to 13. And he says the reason why he wants to visit, if you look at the end of verse 13, uh, it says that um, I want to come uh, in order to reap some harvest among you. So he's talking about the Christians at Rome. He says, I want to come and I want to have a harvest among you, which means to help them grow in their faith. Now, he wants to take them deeper into the gospel. Um, but he also says, I want to have a harvest also among um, the rest of the Gentiles, which is talking about those outside the church. You know, Paul wants to get into that Roman community. He wants to go out on the streets. He wants to visit people. He wants to go places where people are and talk to them about Jesus. He wants to have a harvest. He wants to see people come to faith. And he says there in verse 14, and this is where I want us to concentrate a bit more, he says, I'm under obligation. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, which is saying all classes of people. Uh, he says, I'm under obligation to the wise and to the foolish, which means all levels of education. And he says in verse 15, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you, also who are in Rome. <clears throat> now, what does Paul mean by saying I'm under obligation? In what sense was he under obligation to all those people in Rome? I mean, he had never met them at this point. And that word obligation actually means to be in debt to someone. He's saying, I have a debt to those people in Rome. Now, how does that work? What does that actually mean? Well, there's a commentator that I found very helpful on this, a fellow named Christopher Ash, And he gives this illustration to explain the obligation. Uh, he says, imagine a king um, captures a city and, and takes over, becomes the new king. Now, what that king does, he sends out heralds into that city. And the herald's job is to proclaim to all the citizens of the city to say, hey, everyone, there's a new king. And this new king is offering you terms of pardon. He's not going to kick you out. He's going to allow you to stay. But here are the terms for how you can stay. So that's the herald's job. They have to go out and proclaim this, this um, uh, message of pardon. And those heralds, they're under obligation. They're under obligation to their king to do the job they've been sent to do. But they're also under obligation to the citizens of the city to make sure that everyone hears that. Because what happens if someone doesn't hear? Well, they won't know. And therefore, they could carry on ignoring the new king and then get into trouble. But whose fault would that be? Well, on one hand, it's their own, but also the herald. The, the, the herald actually has a debt to make this message known to all the citizens of the city. That's actually what Paul is saying when he says he is obligated to these people in Rome. And for Paul, he had a special... He had a special sense of obligation because he had a particular role that God had called Paul to that, that none of us are called to. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. And so as apostle to the Gentiles, he had this, this specific role to take the gospel to all of these places where the gospel had never gone before. 
Uh, that's actually why he's writing Romans, because he wants the Roman church to support him as he goes even further off to Spain. And Paul felt that obligation. He felt the debt that he had to make the gospel known to people in, in faraway places. But see, the reason Paul is telling the Romans about his obligation is actually because he wants them to share that obligation. And he's going to come back to this in, at the end, in chapter 15, where he talks about his mission and, and how they can be a part of it, how they can partner in his uh, mission with him. But it is implied here. He's telling them about the obligation because he wants them to share it. And that, that is actually the case that in, in, the, in the Bible, we learn that everyone who comes to know Jesus as their king and saviour becomes obligated to tell other people about him. Now, not in the same way Paul was obligated. Okay? We're not all called to be missionaries in foreign lands. We're not all called to, you know, to be preachers or to go out on, in the marketplace and stand up and get a crowd and tell them the gospel. That's, we're not all called to do that. But what we are all called to do is share the gospel with those around us. Uh, we're, we're actually obligated to do that. We, we have a debt uh, to people. And, um, you know, if you think about, remember, gospel means good news. What is good news for? It's for sharing. Okay, if you have good news, you don't keep it to yourself. You tell others, oh, I've got some good news. And so we are obligated to do that, which means if you've got neighbours, uh, if you've got workmates, if you've got friends, if you've got family members who don't know Jesus, you are actually obligated to tell them. That's what the Bible says. We, we owe it to them. But here's the thing. As soon as we start talking about an obligation, what happens? We start to feel bad. <laughs> because telling people about Jesus, it's not easy. And uh, it does actually bring us back to this issue of shame. Uh, you know, I know many here, I know, you know, we all struggle in some ways with evangelism. Um, it's not the most popular um, course to take in a church. Uh, but why, why is it that we struggle with evangelism? Why, is, why do we struggle with the idea of talking to, you know, say a workmate that we've, we've never spoken to them about Jesus? Why does, it, why, why does it freak us out? Why do we avoid it when the opportunity comes up? And do you know, the more I think about it and the more we think about what Paul's saying here in Romans... We don't avoid it because we doubt the gospel's true. Okay, we all know the gospel's true because Jesus has risen. And we don't avoid telling people about Jesus because we don't feel obligated. The point is we do feel obligated. In fact, some, some of us lie awake at night thinking about you know, our loved ones, thinking about our friends and thinking about those opportunities that we let slip. So we do feel obligated. I know some of you here even worry you know, about your unbelieving children and your grandchildren and you wonder what's eternity going to be like for them. It is a burden on your heart. And yet even with that burden, we still find it hard to tell people about Jesus. Uh, we worry, you know, boy, that the conversation could get really awkward. My grandchildren might think I'm nuts. You know, they're the kind of fears that we have. And so what is that? That's actually the struggle with <clears throat> the shame. The shame of the gospel. Uh, 
How do you overcome that? What will make you eager, like Paul says, eager to talk about the gospel? Well, that comes in this last section, in verses 16 to 17. Uh, here we see the power of the gospel. Okay, the gospel has power. And uh, Paul tells us um, why he's eager to preach the gospel. You'll notice that in verses 16 and 17, there are three um, statements that begin with the word for. And uh, each of the statements build on each other. So Paul says, I'm eager to preach the gospel. Why? For I am not ashamed of it. That's why he's eager. He doesn't feel ashamed. Why doesn't he feel ashamed? Well, he tells us in the next statement. For it is the power of God... Uh, hang on, I need to read it. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes... <clears throat> to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And why is the gospel the power for salvation? For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, <clears throat> you might think to yourself, uh, you know, your little efforts to talk about Jesus, maybe to your grandchildren or your friends or something, you might feel like that's going to do nothing. You know, what, what can I possibly say? How can I ever convince anyone? Right? But do you see what verse 16 is saying? The power of God is in the words of the gospel. God works powerfully through this message. And uh, God's power, what is it for? It's for salvation. This is God's power to bring someone who is spiritually dead into new life in Christ. This is God's power to... to, to for a sinner to become right with him. This is God's power to change lives. And, you know, the Apostle Paul, he had experienced that power in a very dramatic way in his conversion. You know, he used to hate Christians. He went out of his way to try to kill them. And yet, the power of the gospel completely turned his life upside down. He became this apostle to the Gentiles, people that he used to despise. Now he's wanting to reach. And uh, as he took the gospel and all of these missionary journeys, he saw just over and over again the power of the gospel at work. People's lives completely turned around as they come to know Jesus as Lord and Saviour. And see, God's power is continuing to be displayed through the proclamation of the gospel. Now we've seen it here. It's happening right among us. In fact, any of you here who have come to know Jesus as Lord and Saviour, do you know why that's happened? It's not because you're extra smart. It's not because you're clever. It's not because you had the right upbringing. It's because of the power of God has come into your life and that came through the hearing of the gospel. Okay, you heard about Jesus and God worked powerfully to turn your life around so that you gave your life to him. That's the power of God for salvation. See, you know, this word salvation, it actually means the whole scope of salvation. It's the whole scope from beginning to end. Now, we tend to think of it like um, this is God's power to, to make someone a Christian, but it's actually God's power to do everything, to transform a Christian and to make sure they get there at the end, which is a way of saying that we, we never move on from the gospel. Even as Christians, what, what do we do? 
we just go deeper and deeper into the gospel. That's why Paul wanted to go to Rome and tell the Christians the gospel. Now, why does he need to do that? They already know it. No, no, but we need to go deeper into it because there's so much to discover. Uh, there's so many riches of, uh, of understanding uh, found in the gospel. And the more we dig in, the more we find that power of the gospel uh, at work in our lives to, to transform us. And uh, that's why we're going to you know, go through Romans uh, together um, over the next um, X many of weeks. Uh, but what you will find, the deeper you go into the gospel and the more you experience that transforming power in your life, do you know what ends up happening? You just can't help sharing it. You can't help telling other people about it. It's just, it's just the way it works. You, know, you, you get hold of this gospel and you realise this really is good news and you just can't wait to tell people. See, that's what helps you to overcome the shame. And, uh, but let's ask this last question. Why is the gospel the power for salvation? Why is it? Well, look at verse 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, this statement, the righteousness of God, that is a key statement in Romans. So we need to start to get our minds around what it means. <clears throat> and when you hear that statement, the righteousness of God, at first it can kind of sound like it's talking about some attribute of God. You know, God is righteous. Uh, he always does what's fair. He always does what's just. That's what um, righteous means. And so it can sound like Paul saying, you know, in the gospel, the righteousness of God, God's character is revealed. And there is a sense in which God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel like that. And uh, a later sermon will unpack that. But when Paul talks about the righteousness of God being revealed in the gospel here, he's actually talking about a gift that God gives. Okay, God gives his righteousness to everyone who puts their faith in Jesus. That's what it's talking about, the righteousness of God. Uh, see, if you, if you want to be right with God, how are you going to be right with God? You need something. You need the righteousness of God. That's the only way you can be right with God. And what the gospel opens up and reveals to us is that the way to get the righteousness of God is not by working hard, but by receiving it by faith alone. And that's what that statement, from faith, for faith, means. The only way you can get the righteousness of God is by faith alone. And, you know, that, that, that is actually the complete opposite of how most people think about um, how to get right with God. You know, most people assume that if there's a God, then the way to get right with Him is by working really hard. You know, trying to live a really good life, and then at the end, when you stand before God... At the end of your life, uh, you know, you assume that God's going to go, okay, let's see what you got. Check out all your good deeds. Yeah, yeah, that's enough. I'll let you in. That's how most people think you get right with God. But that doesn't work, okay, because you need the righteousness of God. No one has that, no matter how hard they try. The righteousness of God. Uh, but here's the good news. The good news of the gospel is that a right standing with God is not something you achieve. It's something God gives freely. Something you receive 
just by believing in Jesus. See, for everyone who believes in Jesus, what God does is that he, he takes all of your sin and he counts that to Jesus who was punished for it on the cross and then he takes Jesus' perfect life and he credits it. that's to, to you. You receive that by faith. And so God's righteousness is actually, it's actually Christ's righteousness, the, the righteous life that Christ lived. That record is given to you when you believe in him. And so now God regards you as righteous in his sight. That's what the gospel reveals. And, uh, you know, Paul quotes from the Old Testament basically to say, it's how it's always been. How do you live in a right relationship with God? Habakkuk 2.4 says, um, I know, yeah, 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. See, it's by faith alone. And look, everyone... Everyone needs to be put right with God. Uh, over the next two chapters, Paul is going to go into great detail to show that all of us, you know, in our natural state, are unrighteous with God. And we desperately <clears throat> need to be put right with God. But there's only one way to be put right. It's to receive it as a gift. To receive righteousness as a gift. You won't find any other way it's only found in the gospel it's revealed in the gospel alone which is why how are our friends and family how are our workmates ever going to know how to be right with God when we share the gospel tell them about the righteousness that comes to those who believe Christ's righteousness given as a gift so there you go Paul uh, he introduces his letter and straight off the bat, what does he want to communicate? His excitement for the gospel. And he wants his readers, he wants us to share that excitement so that we not only love it in our private lives, <laughs> he doesn't want us just to be excited about the gospel within these walls, but to be publicly excited, to want to tell the world. And how do, how do we do that? Only when we can overcome our shame and that comes when we know the fact of the gospel, that it's true. comes when we know the obligation, that we do owe it to tell people. But when we know the power of the gospel, that, it, that through it God can transform anyone, the hardest, angriest person God can change through the gospel. So that's why we're not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. This really is good news for everyone.